I'm Abby Disney, and you're listening to All Ears. When we started this podcast in April, we were focusing on economic inequality. But inequality is not always just about economics. We all watched a public lynching. And it seemed important to focus directly on race and racial injustice. For the remainder of the season, I'm using my platform to talk with some amazing thinkers and movement leaders about how we got here and how we should move forward. Testing. Okay. I think we are ready. Okay. Um, Luke, I need some tissue. That's the only thing I need. (laughs) Is this a family member getting you tissue? Yes, it is. He has become the production assistant. (laughs) (laughs) So I got to do a like more formal, fancy introduction. So why don't I start that now? Okay, great. My guest today is a hero in the truest sense. She's certainly a hero of mine. If you go back through her life and look at her activism, the breadth is incredible. Kimberly Crenshaw is the originator of the term intersectionality. She also started the critical race theory movement. She co-founded and is executive director of the African American Policy Forum. And here's the thing. She's an academic, a scholar, but she's one of those very, very rare scholars whose academic work has left the ivory tower and had an impact on the real world around us. That impact is being seen on the streets every day these days. I have to tell you, I kind of cheated last night and spoke to Kimberly. We were just supposed to touch base, but uh, it turned into a wide-ranging, two-hour-long conversation about pretty much everything. And what we figured out was that we are pretty much the same vintage. Uh, I'm 60, she's 61. We grew up seeing all the same things and uh, had all the same uh, cartoons and heroes and so forth that we loved. And yet we were coming at things from such very different places. So it's incredibly wonderful to find that we found ourselves together in the same place now. So Kimberly Crenshaw, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. We we had a really nice talk yesterday on the phone, and it really did feel like we've known each other all the time. But amazingly, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, we were talking about yesterday, just in terms of my memory of the Watts riots. Yes, watching it, seeing the smoke rise from yeah. from from the hills, right? Yeah. Sort of the gaze outward and seeing that, which was, it's a memory that really, your memory that's now stuck in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the fear in my house. And um, it's just that we, that there are, are two Americas in some ways. And I wonder if what we're seeing out there is the finally maybe the, the uniting of the two realities, at least among young people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go let's go back to the 80s for a minute, because, you know, you and I were both graduate students. I at Columbia, you at Harvard, kind of around the same time. Yep. And the 80s brought us, of course, Ronald Reagan, who started his campaign mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, Mississippi, mm-hmm. and was the king of the dog whistle <laughs> and really kind of ushered in a period of retrenchment around race and racial justice. We saw just such an erosion. Well, the 80s, that was the period where it became clear that we as a a people, and particularly those of us who'd been deeply committed to racial justice and and, and gender justice, that that upward momentum was over. I was actually uh, a student uh, at Cornell when Ronald Reagan was elected, mm-hmm. and I remember uh, the evening of his election was one of the moments when Cornell experienced racist hate crimes. Some students saying mm-hmm. that they were accosted by uh, white students, another episode in, involving you know, some other racist graffiti on the Africana Center. It was clear that something had been unleashed 
And that unleashing mm. wasn't just at the level of students and, and people getting excited. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court, this idea mm-hmm. now that whatever the civil rights movement had been, it was pretty much over. So I left Cornell along with a whole cohort of students going to law school thinking we want to be of service to this movement we want to be part of like this next generation and what we encountered was number one the recalcitrance of uh, liberal institutions that never really saw themselves as part of the problem um, against a bigger Mm -hmm. backdrop of a society that was ready to move on so you came along in that period um, and really shook up the harvard law school can you can you tell me about that yeah. So my mother uh, ended up reading in the New York Times about a protest that I'd been involved in. And uh, she called me up on the phone, was horrified. Like, what are you doing? You know, are you, you know we worked so hard to get you here. You know, you're going to ruin it. And I just started explaining to mom, well, look, here's what happened. Uh, we got here to study with Derek Bell. Derek Bell had left, you know, three months before we got here. He he was up in arms, really, about the Mm -hmm. fact that even though he was there and another black faculty member was there, they had no others. They weren't planning to get any others. Right, right. So can you help me understand who Derek Bell was? Derek Bell was a civil rights litigator who went on to become one of the first African-Americans to teach at Harvard Law School. He wrote a book called Race, Racism, and American Law, which was a staple for any of us who were thinking we wanted to become civil rights lawyers, thinking we wanted to be involved in racial justice struggle through uh, gaining expertise about race and the law. And he, he decided that he could no longer stay there because it was impossible for him to persuade his faculty members to recruit other people of color to teach. He, he, and he wasn't happy being an exception. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he just left. And we went in demanding to have courses taught that he taught, which was why we were there. And they basically told us, you know, number one, what's so special about these courses? And number two, wouldn't you prefer an excellent white professor over a mediocre black one? Oh, my God. And those set the terms of our existence there. So once I told my mom that and I said, look, we are the lunch counters of, you know, today. Right. Mm. We're doing an intellectual sit in at the seat of legal power. Right. Once I explained that to her, then, you know, she was on board. You know, she had raised me to be an activist. So mm-hmm. that was what we walked into in the 80s. And that's pretty much shaped everything since, in my mm-hmm. opinion. What I read was that not only did Derek Bell leave, but he was replaced by two civil rights attorneys. Right. Well, so what the students were demanding was, first of all, Derek Bell's course called Race, Racism and American Law. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, a full semester course. It was basically an interrogation about how the law has both created race and racism and at the same time in the you know mid 20th century. Uh, been presented as a reformist institution. So his course was looking at the contradiction of law with respect to race and racism. Well, what they offered us instead was a mini course, which was two weeks, Mm. and it was taught by two adjunct uh, civil rights lawyers, and it was about civil rights litigation. Now, that's really important. It's really great. But it was not what we were asking for. What we were asking for was a full treatment of law and racial subordination. We were demanding that the law school use this moment to integrate its faculty, to actually use this as a way of integrating the talent that we knew existed across the country for permanent positions, tenured positions at Harvard. So they basically ignored that demand. They went on that year to hire 10 white men, 10 (laughs) out of 10 people, you know, 10 slots. They Mm. couldn't find Mm. one. 
for a person of color. So that was why we reacted to their response by building our own course. We called it the alternative course. And in that course, we used Derek Bell's textbook and we reached out across the country to find scholars of color that we would then combine all our resources to bring to campus to teach uh, a chapter out of his book. That's why we called it the alternative course. You know, Har- Harvard was hard to change and was important to change for the same reason, which is because it's seen as this leading institution. And I think an institution that goes back to the early 17th century is especially going to be very invested in the idea that that law is neutral. Mm-hmm. It doesn't contain any value one way or the other. It's just simply a rational thing. And I, I look at your work over the years, and one of the through lines I see is a, a contention with silencing. They narrow this course down and refuse to see what you're saying about the difference between a two-week course in civil rights law and the whole sweep of what Derek Bell was teaching in critical race theory. Mm-hmm. What was so eye-opening to me about this is that we weren't having a fight with like conservative institutions in the South. Mm -hmm. We were in the bastion of liberal institutional preparation uh, of lawyers going into, you know, Wall Street and, and becoming, you know, leaders across the country. So they would have seen themselves as being our friends. In fact, the dean at the time was a board member of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, so we were confronting the many ways that racial power was often embedded and reproduced, even in colorblind ways. They would not have seen themselves as doing anything that remotely looked like racial segregation mm-hmm. of the past. They would see themselves, mm-hmm. and they, they basically said it, um, we are we are waiting for talented mm-hmm. professors of color to emerge from the pool. Right, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the pool is shallow right now. Yeah, um, but we have confidence that eventually they will will emerge. But using that framework suggests that the pool is this naturally constituted, you know, like the ocean, right? Right. Eventually, you know, the fish will grow legs and lungs and walk out and we'll go, voila, here they are. (laughs) Yes. We were saying we need to change who's in the building. And so that's where, you know, we, it became clear to us that even liberal thinking about race and racism was, not critical thinking about race and racism. There there was a lot more that liberals had in common with colorblind conservatives than they had mm-hmm. with those of us who were thinking about race critically. Right. And this and this insistence on the colorblindness, especially among liberals, it has them clinging to the idea of the individual racist. The individual who is reprehensible and horrible and you see him coming a mile away and he's wearing a white sheet. And mm-hmm. that is the extent of racism. And there, there was just a, a pattern of denial of institutional responsibility. What amazes me is that at Harvard, of all places... And it started with slave money, just adding that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and the role Boston played in the triangle mm-hmm. um, trade and, and so forth, that there would be no consciousness that what you do today is very much informed by what they were doing then. And it also means that they have to confront the question of their own legitimacy. That's that's really what the beauty and the danger of meritocracy is. It's one thing if people understood their privileges in terms of just the brute yeah. uh, expression of power. Like, right. we're white, we're men, we're here, uh, we're the king of the mountain, and that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But meritocracy gives them another frame, another way of institutionalizing their presence in an exclusionary mm-hmm. way that doesn't rely on the brute expression of power and force. So if you can find some other (laughs) mechanism to say, it's not about who we are, it's about this external thing we have and it's called merit. And you know what, here's how we're gonna measure Mm -hmm. merit. We're we're basically gonna sort of take the social biographies of all of us Mm 
we're going to turn a test out of that. Right. And we're going to give this test to other people. And if they take the test and they can replicate our uh, language and our cultural references mm-hmm. and the things that are important to us, yeah. and they get a high score on that test, then they can come and be part of this club. If they don't get a high score on that test, it's not because of race or gender or even class. It's because they don't have that stuff inside their head that we have. And that has largely been the story that allows people to continue to look in, in higher education and see massive mm-hmm. levels of disproportionality still in terms of who's uh, faculty, who's tenured, who's adjunct, yeah. who's week to week. So, so as I'm, I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm hearing again and again, there was so many parallels with feminism. You know, this Mm -hmm. question of being silenced, this question of meritocracy and achievement gaps. When did you begin to start bringing a feminist analysis to the things that you were thinking about and doing? Well, the feminist uh, in me had been there. It went all the way back to when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, seeing the double standards, even within my own family. So what was so eye-opening for me when I finally got to law school um, was to see first institutionally how the sides get constructed. So in, in in the debates that we were having over faculty hiring, a big issue also was that women weren't being hired. Particularly liberals were taking up the, 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 project of trying to deepen the pool, broaden the pool, get faculty to see that there were many, many women out there who were qualified and there were many, many people of color. But in classic fashion, the list of women didn't include women of color and the list of people of color didn't include women, not Mm -hmm. initially. And I was really struck by how obvious it was to me that a structure like that was going to produce precisely the silencing about those candidates who were both of color and were women. It was also surprising to me that it wasn't that it was so surprising to everyone else. Right. Right. So when I left Harvard, I, I really wanted to think about all of these questions, like what was it? that was so profoundly different about a course on race, racism, and American law Mm -hmm. that we didn't really fully have an answer to. What was it about the way institutions structure their thinking about race, racism, and and sexism that allow for black women to fall through the cracks? And then I just started reading law cases and saw, well, this is no mystery. The courts themselves have no capacity to understand that when a black woman makes a claim that a particular workforce excludes her as a black woman the women's jobs are for white women and the black jobs are for men they literally cannot hear what they're saying (laughs) because their understanding of racism is limited pretty much to what happens to men and their understanding of sexism is limited to what happens to their sisters daughters and wives so that's where intersectionality actually came to my to to my imaginary, like what kind of tool, what kind of metaphor, what kind of everyday Mm -hmm. concept can I build understanding onto so these judges can hear and see what these black women plaintiffs are actually saying. So it was a metaphor that came out Mm -hmm. of interrogating the absence. Right, right, right. Now, now the absence in, in the narrative, I mean, narratives are so important. I think how vividly narrative has shaped my identity, my consciousness, my, my means of thinking. And, and, you know, as a white girl in a very privileged house being raised by a Southern mother, mm. I got a narrative about slavery. What, what, was your, what was it? I mean, when you think about that, what's the narrative about race and gender? Uh, you know, so to fill everybody else in, I, I, I shared with Kimberly yesterday that my mother's family could trace its line all the way back to the first portage in New Orleans. You know, everything bad around race that you might imagine happened in my family. They owned a, a sawmill where they had slaves, mm-hmm. enslaved people. They bought and sold enslaved people. I've seen the, the census information. Yeah, all of that. Mm-hmm. And my mother was an embittered Southerner, even though she was 
raising us in Southern California. <laughs> and so I can remember reading my fifth grade history book and having my mother look over my shoulder and say, oh, this just is not fair, the way they're talking about this. You know, mm -hmm. most of the slave owners were very nice. Mm. I just remember looking at her and saying, but weren't they slaves? <laughs> right. But they were happy slaves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she said to me, at the end of the war, they were so happy they didn't wow. want to leave. Wow. <laughs> Reconstruction was totally invisible in the way I was taught about the 19th century. Black people went invisible, mm -hmm. uh, really, until the 1950s. There was, mm -hmm. It was like they were sitting around kind of playing cards until they became important again. Do <laughs> <Right. laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. And so I had internalized patriarchy, certainly up the wazoo, but I also had internalized racism that I grew up with. I think of it as something I continually try to shed in a conscious way. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Because when you're small, you have to be complicit. You don't know any other reality. Right. So when did you become complicit? I can't tell you that because it was like the way the sun rises just slowly mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you can't make a marker when the sun is up. And I think that because I was struggling always from childhood, just like you, about the unfairness that were happening in terms of gender in my family, I think that that made me more sensitive mm -hmm. to things like silencing. Mm -hmm. um, and because I was hypersensitive about silencing, then I tended to ask myself, well, how would it feel if I were a slave? If how, would, you know, and, and so I, that was how I started digging out. But, but I don't know that everybody digs out because the fabric of people's lives, real lived experiences, is not what we're taught. Right. right. And, and so we don't go all the way there in terms of imagining the rapes and imagining the work the labor of black women in slavery and, and imagining the sensation of erasure. Mm -hmm. And there mm -hmm. is no room for the emotional shredding that would have to come with genuine mm -hmm. empathy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do think that many people right now are having a moment where they're thinking, well, how did I not know this stuff? Mm -hmm. um, what is being done in my name? What is allowed to happen because it's happening to other people and not happening to me? And now that I've asked those questions and I'm starting to get some answers to those questions, what drives me to do something about it? I think sometimes people mistake the desire for justice as simply guilt. I do want people to have a reckoning with the world in which they live. I do want people to feel like, you know, this now that I know, now that I've taken this pill, mm -hmm. it requires me to do something. And I don't think that should be disregarded or taken lightly. So those who are writing like the their check to the NAACP, right? That's not enough. It's a, it's a start, but the the kind of self reflection that you're talking about is hard work, and it and it's not like a one time thing. It's now a lifetime of of interrogating, thinking, looking around, seeing things with new eyes, and then acting on what it is your eyes are telling you. Mm -hmm. I you know honestly, I've 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 lived in a state of near constant guilt and good intentions for all of my adult life. It's kind of my defining condition. <laughs> it's been an, an enormous motivator for me in my life to just make myself useful, right? Yeah. My grandmother always said, the road to hell is paved with good intention. That's just an old expression. I remember thinking, well, that's a terrible thing to say. But <laughs> as the older I get, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I think the road to hell really is paved with good intentions yeah, yeah, because yeah. I have seen it again and again. And, and it, I do it personally. Um, you know, like when somebody comes to me and I've done something bad and they want me to apologize, I dismiss them with a really quick apology. And it's abject and sad, but I am totally doing the worst thing you can do if you really want to apologize to someone because I'm not listening. Yeah. Mm. And and it's because I can't hear. Um, my vision and my world structure, my narrative, all of that can't sustain all of what you want to tell me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so, and that's what's happening across the board among white people who want to believe they worked really hard and earned everything they have, and they mm -hmm. have, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, who want to believe that it was all fair, that they didn't get any help. That idea of the world, that this country has been built over bones, mm -hmm. you know, um, that is too hard to let 
in. And so I think that there's this instinctive pushing away of, of the revelations. I mean, one of the biggest bits of trouble I ever got in in the Internet was when I said Meryl Streep was right when she said that my Uncle Walt was a racist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you, you got you got a lot about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I thought it was kind of astonishing the, the blowback I got because, you know, pe- first of all, people were calling me the mm-hmm, C word, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's an interesting way of defending this person because you think he's decent and good. Right. We're, we're going to reach into our bag of misogyny and throw something at you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How dare you? you know? But it was like, I don't understand why I have to explain this. Let's just look at Song of the South. Yeah. So for anybody who doesn't know, Song of the South was a film that uh, the Walt Disney Company put out, I think, at the end of the 40s or may have been in the 50s. But um, it was the story of a young boy who lives on a plantation mm-hmm. in post-Civil War South who befriends this elderly, kind African-American man who's just very content with his life where he is and everything like is... Like an Uncle Remus character. Yeah, exactly. Well, he is Uncle Remus. Um, it was an insult that he wanted to make it to begin with. Um, the NAACP met with him on multiple occasions and told him, described to him how painful this was and how problematic it was Mm -hmm. and in spite of the protests in spite of everything they put it out and um and it's the it's the basis for the ride on splash mountain and and i so i remember being introduced to it as a kid um (laughs) and the thing about disney movies is that they're so magical that you swallow it yeah yeah, you swallow the, the, the poison of it because it's so beautiful. Um, I mean, to this day, I still have zippity doo dah, zippity day. Yeah, you know, in a soundtrack in my head, you know, with with yeah. the smile and you know, Mister Bluebird's on my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I I have to say, I never thought of the song "A Spoonful of Sugar" as a as a political thing, but now you now you've reframed it for me. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's like the whole story. Yeah. And this is the thing that um, gets me into trouble when I critique the company, because um, to interrupt how magical and to interrupt what it means to people, mm-hmm. and especially to say, you know, well, it was racist, guys. Mm-hmm. How did you not notice that? Um, it's it, it feels like people are being assaulted personally. They, their child yeah. is being interrupted. And I understand that completely, mm-hmm. but we just need to get over that. And getting over that, I think, helps as well moving beyond the image, the, the cartoon of racism, right? So there's the cartoon of the the sheriff who is a, a good old boy who, you know, uh, six dogs on people or, you know, otherwise just wants to stomp the life out of them. As long as that's our only view, our only vision, our only way of imagining racism, of course we're not going to make much progress because that's a very, very small part of what constitutes racism. It's a very small part of the language of racism. We're going to have to be able to see in things that made, made us happy or made us sing along racist messages and we have to be able to talk about the way they function as justifications, rationalizations of of the of the lost cause. That that kind of lost cause framework is why, although the North may have won the battle, the South has won the war as long as you can sing along to zippity doo dah zippity day. And that's our problem now. That's the problem with the monuments. That's why we're having a reckoning with our history. You know, the thing about looking at the history with with clarity and with moral courage is you get so much about how you need to be functioning right now. Right now. You know, one of the one of the uh, projects that we have and by we, I mean, the African-American Policy Forum. We have tried to do structural racism workshops that take people back to those earlier moments partly because it's easier in 2020 vision to be able to say, well, 
taking uh, the lands of indigenous people and giving them to farmers, we could see how that was wrong. Um, we could see how stealing labor of black people was wrong. We can see how forcibly abusing, sexually assaulting, and manufacturing people, which is what the rape of black women did during slavery. We can see how that was wrong. So, so we can see all these things, but people are often not able to see the intergenerational passage of those injuries and the things that it produced to today. One of the other things that my group created is this thing called the unequal opportunity race. And it's basically just a cartoon. And it shows people running around the track from the beginning of the Republic. And as, and as each character runs around the track and they get old, they pass the baton on, which is basically wealth. They pass it on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Well, they're running around for decades until we get to 1965 when we finally see black and Latino people being able to run around the race. And so as they run around, they encounter all of the obstacles that are based on race. So it's very simple. It's basically to say if you're running a race and there's stuff in your lane, you're not even able to start until the race has gone on for 200 years. And then there's stuff in your lane that's not in the others. Attending to that is not reverse discrimination. That's the simple point. It had been shown, you know, millions of times, but it was shown in in Rico County. It was the, the seat of Richmond, Virginia, the seat of the old Confederacy. And some of the parents denounced it as a white guilt video and went to the school board and the school board banned it. Now, I say this because we, we started this part talking about narrative. This is a fight about narrative. This is a fight about what stories get told. This is a fight about what stories cannot be tolerated. And if you don't have a narrative that backs up a policy or a demand or a sense that there is still work to be done on racial injustice, if if you don't have the narrative, Mm. you can't get the work done. You can't communicate to other people why the society we live in is not okay. We can't say to the 10-year-old you looking at the smoke rising from Watts, why that smoke rising from Watts isn't just about Watts. It's also about where you are gazing from. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the only thing that saved me from my patriarchal upbringing was being so bad at patriarchy. (laughs) I mean, I was just too loud, too bossy, too opinionated. I just didn't... Me too. Yes, exactly. I call it not getting the memo. There's all these women I know that didn't get the memo about how you were supposed to be. And my mom... My mom was, in in this way, I think, um, a contradiction. Because on one hand, you know, as a as a race warrior, you know, she she and my dad expected us at the dinner table every day to have something to say about the world we were living in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was part of the the striving generation taking full responsibility for living up to the moment and then transcending it, turning it into something better for the the race. So that, that was very much a part of mm-hmm. it. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think she figured out early in life that I would need to be trimmed a little bit <laughs> around mm. the edges. Yes. So she, yeah. I would always, she would listen to me playing with, with, you know, my little friends who are boys. And she would say afterwards, you know, you could let them win sometimes. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, but why? <laughs> why do I have to let them win? Yeah, exactly. You know, but why? If, if they win, they win. If they don't, they don't. Why, why is exactly. this my responsibility? And it was, there were these moments when she was trying to, I guess, send me the memo, but sliding it in, you know, a, a little bit. But I, I just couldn't hear it. It made no sense to me. I didn't understand. Yeah. I didn't understand this thing called, you know, the male ego. So yes. I just thought <laughs> if we're all good at Monopoly. We're going to have the best time if we all play our best. Yes. I didn't I didn't get it. And then I, I would say for me, the, the other factor, my my father died suddenly when I was 10. Mm. So from the time I was 10 onwards, I didn't see the internal negotiation in the household. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just saw my mom, you know, working and making a, a, a better life for us and, 
you know, being what she had to be in the world. So I think I started off not really being responsive to the memo, and then I didn't have any example of the memo. Um, and so by the time I, I got out in the world, I, I, I guess I was a feral <laughs> you know, version of what, what a woman is supposed to be. You know, I do, I do think that if there were women who got the memo before us that we haven't heard of, I mean, certainly they've been silenced and erased and all that. Sure. But I think many of them were dead before they had a chance to do anything. I mm. think that's true to this day. I always wonder how many Anne Franks we've never heard of. Mm-hmm. You know, because the diary didn't make it to the publisher. Yeah, yeah. And, and the belief that our lives are worth narrating. You know, you, you, have, mm-hmm. to, you have to first yeah. think that how you think is worthy of recording and sharing. Yeah. Reading, you know, Toni Morrison and Toni K. Bambara mm-hmm. and, you know, um, Zora Neale Hurston, like knowing that their narratives were telling me something about my life that was important for me to see and witness. Um, that mm-hmm. helps build a subjectivity that empowers mm-hmm. you to say, hey, you know, what about us? <laughs> um, I yeah. think the challenge is when the political structures don't amplify that moment when you say, hey, what about us? Um, when right. you are valued to the extent that you can tell the story of the racism that happens to your father, son, husband, or brother, but not mm-hmm. valued when mm-hmm. you're ready to tell the story about how racism impacts your daughter, your, your, your mother, you know, you, um, your partner. Right. And that, right. frankly, is, I think, the work that is under-realized um, and I think we're seeing its mm-hmm. underrealization in this moment now that we're talking about race and racism yeah. again, anti-black racism again. It's come online because we're looking at police um, pr- brutality. Mm-hmm. And at the same yeah. time, you know, were it not for the fact that Breonna Taylor was killed within this same yeah. season, we would not be talking about black women at all. Yeah. And that is... We wouldn't be talking about Brianna at all if it hadn't been for George Floyd. Uh, Oh, Brianna was... And, you know, I think people forget, Brianna was killed March 13th. Yeah. Uh, George Floyd was killed uh, two months later. Uh, And so up until that moment, no one was really demanding any kind of accountability for for her death. And so in in some way, her death is sort of a metaphor for all the other black women who um, have been killed in between Eric Garner and Mike Brown or in between Mike Brown and Philando Castile. There are black women, but our ability to see them is limited because we don't imagine anti-black racism through the lens of violence through state violence we don't even imagine them um as objects of private violence we don't see them as having been lynched we don't see them as having been raped um and when we don't see that we don't see the connections to uh feminist organizing most people don't know that rosa parks got her start defending Reese Taylor, who was a, a rape victim of several white men in the South, and she never was able to get justice. So that's not been remembered. The not remembering it has had incredible consequences because still people see anti-racism and feminism as two separate, yes. mutually exclusive you know, movements. And mm-hmm. that's harmed us. I, I, yeah. I look at Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court and I say oh that's God. a product of the separation of our two movements. Yes, exactly. Can you explain that, actually? Because you did an op-ed about it in the New York Times uh, a couple of years ago, and I thought it was brilliantly put together. Yeah, well, so at that moment, so I was one of the, um, the one of the folks who went to Washington to support Anita Hill when she was uh, subpoenaed, and I always want to say that because many people still don't know that she was subpoenaed to come to tell the story that people had heard about. I, I want to just share this one little snapshot. Um, so we were all backstage. Her main uh, lawyer comes in and says, okay, everyone in the office, come out. <laughs> 
so we we march in beside her sort of like the a prize fighter right? we go in because we're we're there and my mother has no idea that i'm in washington dc she thinks i'm in los angeles and she's watching it and mm. she sees me <laughs> march oh, wow. in and once again like what are you doing <laughs> it was crazy but what happened when Clarence Thomas did that, this is a high-tech lynching, you know, uh, against any black man who deems to, to think for himself. He wrapped himself up in a history of lynching um, as a symbol of this is what racism looks like. This is a racist thing that's happening right here. So if you know about lynching, then this is what's happening. Now, of course... No man has ever been lynched for any accusation that a black woman has ever made. Let, let's just start there. And number two, he was the furthest person from any, you know, uh, uh, willingness up until this point to say that our racial history has anything to do with what's happening now. Yeah. So I thought that it was going to be abundantly clear to everybody that it was <laughs> just an effort to you know, wrap himself up in a, in a story, in a narrative to save yeah. himself and everybody yeah. would see through it. And so what ended up happening is that the coalition that should have come together to, to support Anita and, and defeat that nomination ended up being divided, divided between many white feminists who said, you know, race has nothing to do with it. Well, you know, race has a lot to do with black women's veracity. And we could see that in the way the committee attacked her. And then African-Americans who basically said stuff like, you know, why is a black woman pulling a black man down? Yeah. Stuff like sexual harassment isn't our issue. And that one really pushed me over the edge because sexual harassment has been an issue for black women since we arrived on these shores. Yes. We were the ones who contested it. Our black women were the ones who were the first plaintiffs against it, who got it established as um, a, a point of anti-discrimination law. So mm -hmm. that failed communication, that failed moment allowed Clarence Thomas to be confirmed. And then he went on to wreak havoc on civil rights law, on voting rights law, on anti-discrimination law uh, against um, gender discrimination. So right. that was a moment when it became clear to me that the artificial separation between the history of anti-racism and the history of women's rights advocacy was hurting us now. It wasn't just something we forgot in the past. It was right. doing active damage today. Right, right, right. Well, and white feminists aren't exactly innocent in this. These are struggles that we're having with people that we admire and support and we love and we, we march beside and we, you know, and at the same time, recognizing that allyship doesn't necessarily bring visibility mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Um, or, or your interests. And this is a big issue now, you know, for black women. They are the backbone of the Democratic Party. They mm -hmm. are the ones that get people out to vote. They are the ones that more than any other cohort voted against the um, yeah. scapegoating, uh, racist, xenophobic, sexist politics of 45, more than anyone. Yeah. One would think that their leadership, like because they got it so, so right, yeah. that we would want to know how do we replicate that? You know, mm -hmm. they should have been put in significant places of strategy, yeah. uh, political messaging, you know, creativity. And that just doesn't happen. Black women still have to struggle for leadership in yeah. the party and in organizations. Yeah. So if we take seriously that wisdom, it should mean that we, we reflect that in terms of placing people who've experienced this in, in institutional positions of authority. We've not done that. Yeah. And until we yeah. do, we're not going to be able to really harness what is in that special sauce that comes from living life right. at the intersections of all of these structured inequalities.
Right. And, and you know, you remember the Pillsbury Doughboy? You remember those commercials? Yes, you of kind course, of, with the little giggle at the yes, end. Yes, you, you poke him in the belly and he giggles and it makes a little dent and then the dent just goes right back out. It goes away. Yeah, that's how I think of men. I mean, I, I so I love men. I have men all over my life. They're wonderful. But, but with men, especially men over a certain age, um, mm. when you remind them that a woman was standing there, when you remind them that an African-American woman started this organization, when you remind them that Rosa Parks was so much more than just this nice old lady who sat on a bus, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. go, oh, yeah, you're right. That's weird. And then, then like five minutes later, the dance is gone and you have to remind them again. Mm-hmm. And and that's the mm-hmm. thing that I think probably comes out of guilt and privilege and an unwillingness to accommodate something that disrupts your narrative but it's to our detriment it is to our detriment yeah and I, and I would say the normalcy of patriarchy and and here's the hard part what do we make of women who are also the Pillsbury Doughboy yeah I mean what what's our analysis yeah. of that right yeah. because we know that's real too you know a lot of splintering I think I stood witness to in the 90s when there started to emerge women's groups that were just focused on women's leadership and just mm-hmm. focused on putting women into boardrooms and at heads of yeah. companies and things like that. And, and, and that's how Ivanka Trump can unabashedly call herself a feminist. Yes. That version of feminism has become a tool of the patriarchy because yes. what it yes. does is it doesn't challenge any of the structures um, that got us here to start with. It doesn't mm-hmm. ask economic questions about like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, why is a whole swath of people being paid poverty wages to do full-time jobs? Why do these race structures persist in spite of all this good talk in the other direction? And that's that's precisely why I think it raises a question of what we do now. So Ivanka mm-hmm. in the White House, you know, or yeah. Ivanka marching out with her father when they tear gassed <laughs> the protesters. That's yeah. a feminist moment. If that's a feminist yeah. moment, a lot of people say... Yeah. I don't want any part of it, right? So there is that. And then there is the side that says, we will not relinquish feminism to that. Mm -hmm. We will not make a claim that feminism is wherever a woman is exercising power. We will Mm -hmm. not allow the real grassroots realities that shape the lives of billions of people on this planet to be absorbed in the careerist, opportunistic demands for recognition of those at the very top of the political social hierarchy. So right. I, I kind of, you know, line up with those who say, I'm not going to give up feminism any more than I'm going to give up anti-racism anymore that I'm going to give up civil yeah. rights. Fights about concepts, about politics are also fights about narratives, what stories are being advanced by our use of the term, and how are those not the stories that are being advanced by our opponent's use of the term? So I think that's yeah. where the fight is right now. It's not about conceding the, the, the terrain. It's about, it's about getting those definitions and those frameworks back on our side. Kim, it's interesting. It's just, you don't like a binary it's very clear. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It, it yeah. seems like you're all about finding a way to synthesize binaries. I mean, I think it's a very profound thing because isn't isn't that the, the way you grow into being a, a sophisticated thinker is you need to let go of the binaries because it's not a yeah. reasonable yeah. way to think about the world. Yeah. Well, that's very much, I mean, yeah, you put your finger on intersectionality, mm-hmm. critical uh, race theory, you know, the work the work we do in Say Her Name, for example, in, in yeah. politics. So a lot of uh, um, my organizations focus on uh, the killing of black women by police. That focuses on a traditional way of thinking about uh, anti-black police violence and putting women into it. But there's also the reality that sexual abuse is the second most common complaint against police, which means that sexual violence, it actually happens between police and women, and many of those women are disproportionately black. So uh, Say Her Name has space, holds space, both for families of black women killed by the police, but also for the unintentional 
uninterrogated dimension of police violence that both traditional civil Mm -hmm. rights organizations and traditional gender justice organizations don't really address. It falls outside of the framework for how people tend to think about violence against women. So, yeah, I guess across all of these (laughs) academic and political and organizational spaces, because I have a foot in everything and that and and both those feet are mine, <laughs> I, I try to think in a in a in a synthesized way rather than, you know, talking to myself right. in two different uh registers and, and finding a place and a space for all of that to be integrated into organizational work, into academic work, right. into policy work. So Kimberly I just want to thank you so, so, so much for this conversation. It's been really, really interesting, and I've learned so much right now, and I'm so grateful. And and thank you. I, I You've given me a perspective on things, especially since we were contemporaries. I feel like yeah. I'm, I'm learning about what your 10-year-old self was thinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Los Angeles and mine in uh, Canton, Ohio. So it's it's a fascinating conversation. Thanks for having it with me. We'll have to keep it up. If you want to know more about Kimberly Crenshaw, you can find her on Twitter at Sandy Locks. Her podcast is called Intersectionality Matters with an exclamation point at the end. And her web series is called Under the Blacklight. You can find her as executive director of the African American Policy Forum. That's AAPF.org. And just to let you know, we're taking next week off, uh, but we will be back on the 9th. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and spread the word. Thoughts, questions, feedback? You can reach us at podcast at forkfilms.com. And thanks to my All Ears team, Kathleen Hughes, Aideen Kane, Alexis Pancrazi, Christine Schomer, Kat Vecchio, Lauren Winbush, and Sabrina Yates. Our theme music was composed by Bob Golden. Thanks for listening.